Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. It's our one-year anniversary here at Talking Robots, and we'd like to thank our growing number of listeners for your support and the 65,000 downloads we've registered so far. Since we'd love to know who you are so we can make our show better, it would be great if you could fill out a survey at lis.epfl.ch podcast. On today's episode, we'll be talking to Sebastian Thrun, who is the director of the Stanford AI Lab in California. He'll be driving us through his know-how in probabilistic robotics, and he'll tell us how, with the Stanford team and Stanley the Robot Car, he won the DARPA Grand Challenge in 2005. Here comes the next step, fully autonomous cars in urban environments. Hi Sebastian, welcome to Talking Robots. Uh, Hello, Sabina. So on the 8th of October in 2005, you led the Stanford team to victory when your autonomous car, Stanley, won the 205 DARPA Grand Challenge. This DARPA Grand Challenge, the goal was to, to go with an autonomous car uh, across a 132-mile course laid in the desert in less than 10 hours. And of, of, the only, of the 22 teams who were selected to do this race, only five crossed the finish line. What made the DARPA Challenge so challenging? Yes, yeah, so this DARPA Grand Challenge race that occurred in 2005 was really a, a very unique uh, robot race in that uh, robots never had been able to show that they could drive themselves over terrain as, as rough and difficult as, as, a, as a real desert for more than just a couple of minutes. There was a race in 2004 uh, that was called DARPA Grand Challenge 1 where the robots had to do essentially the same thing, drive 140 miles and the best-performing robot almost fell down a cliff after less than 5% of the total distance, so like 7 miles. And, and that's actually a really difficult task because you, you're in a desert, you, you have to follow a small trail. The trail is full of, of dangers like rocks and cliffs and, and berms and so on. And it doesn't suffice to get a 99% correct. If you get a 99% correct, then the hundredth such danger, like the hundredth rock on the side, which is uh, like half a mile in, will kill you uh, and, and, and you run a flat tire. Um, so the robot has to be so smart that over many, many hours of time, it can actually really accommodate every unforeseen situation and make the right decision. Now, as you just said, Sabina, um, our race took place on October 8, 2005, and of the 22 contestants, five actually finished. I see this as a very positive result. Within a year, the robotics community was able to produce machines that can really run incredibly difficult terrain. Uh, Some of the terrain was, even for people, hard to drive. It was a very steep cliff area uh, where on one side there was a a 200-feet drop. Uh, And Stanley and and four other robots were able to really make assessments, sense the environment, react to things all in real time, and be able to descend uh, through the Mojave Desert. Why did you decide to enter the competition? What does it take to meet the challenge in just one year? Well, so we entered for a number of reasons. Uh, First, of course, when we saw the outcome of the first competition, which was, uh, as I just quoted, only seven miles uh, for the best-performing team. Many teams just did less than a mile. We felt, uh, you know, we can do better than that. So there was uh, certainly an element of competitiveness and and the attempt to say, you know, um, why do people climb Mount Everest? Because it's there, right? Uh, but the second much more important thing for us was uh, we actually believe that this technology can really save lives and make driving much safer. 
this might be a challenge that takes place in a desert road, and desert roads are not that relevant for most of us. But some of the core things that we've been building in terms of being able, to, vehicle being able to, to control its speed and, and, and so on, um, really transcend into normal human traffic, where uh, at present we lose just about a million people every year due to car accidents. Uh, traffic deaths have become the, num the cause of death uh, number one cause of death for people between the age of three and 33 in the United States. So it's a, a really major problem that we have uh, unsafe cars. And well, most people just ignore it because we take it as an act of God if something happens, but uh, tra tragedy. Uh, but in reality, I think this number can be reduced a lot. Now, in the Grand Challenge, we were given a deadline, as you just pointed out, of about a little more than a year. And we had to build the machine uh, from scratch, including getting a car and retrofitting the car to make it drivable by a computer, putting sensors on the car so the, the, the car can sense the, the, the surrounding environments, and then finally, the hardest of all tasks, uh, programming the computer so that the car makes actually smart and wise decisions and not stupid decisions. So to, to do this all in a year with extensive testing, we started out in a phase that involved massive brainstorming where we had a, a whole class of students working on this together, developing many competing approaches as to how to solve the problem. And after about two months, this class was able to make a machine that could drive further uh, than the furthest team had gotten in the first Grand Challenge on the exact same course. Uh, but it also failed miserable when it almost ran on a cliff and almost killed the people inside and then took over and stopped the, the crazy robot. Um, and then we went into a very focused development phase of a couple of months where we built, I think, really solid software um, and hardened the system um, to the point that uh, most components just work very flawlessly. And in the final phase of a couple of three or four months, uh, we all moved to Arizona and started driving. You know, we went into desert drives. So we had two vehicles, a scouting vehicle and a performance vehicle. The performance vehicle was actually Stanley that finally would win the race. Uh, the scouting vehicle would go out and, and acquire new terrain, by which I mean a couple of us would go out on a car and, and just drive around and try to find appropriate desert trails, of which there are plenty in, in Arizona. And then a day later, we would give the data file that we collected uh, in doing so to, the, uh, to Stanley, our race vehicle, and we did a test, you know, can we drive autonomously? And, and it was interesting. Sometimes um, the car would go berserk after the first 10 minutes, and we would sit there for an hour programming. But as, as time moved on, uh, the, the distances between failures uh, went from like one mile to 20 miles to 100 miles. I still remember this one day when we had the New York Times with us, a major US newspaper, and the car was driving flawlessly for two hours and then for some bizarre software problem decided to, to run straight into a tree. And you can imagine what the New York Times article covered afterwards. So we spent, spent endless hours just driving, 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 and uh, sitting in a car that drove itself. We all had helmets on for, for our own protection. We had an emergency stop button where we could stop the car if it was just about to fall down a cliff. Um, and in the process of doing so, we, we found lots and lots of bugs in the software and the hardware that we could finally get rid of. Um, so the Stanley would be good enough to win this race. Tell us about Stanley. So what type of uh, robot is this? So Stanley, by all means, is, is, is really just a regular SUV, a passenger car. It's a Volkswagen diesel Touareg uh, built in 2004. And to turn a car into a robot, all you have to do is basically you have to find a way to actuate the car, by which I mean you put a little motor on the steering column so you can turn the steering wheel automatically by computer control. And you do the same with the brakes and, and the throttle. In this case, um, the brake actuator and the throttle actuator are already in a Touareg, so you have to just find a way to tap into the electronic system. For example, ABS is a system that electronically actuates your brakes, so we tapped into the ABS system. Um, the second thing you do is you put sensors on the roof 
So we put five laser rangefinders on the roof. Laser rangefinders are precision measurement devices that cost a couple of thousand bucks a piece uh, to measure distances, and they enable Stanley to kind of map out the terrain ahead of it in 3D. We also put a camera on the roof, and of course, very important, a GPS system, a global positioning system, the type of stuff we use in cars to localize ourselves. There was a way for Stanley to find out where on the course it is. And then uh, we put a lot of computing in the trunk, um, five uh, Pentium-grade computers, basically laptops, a different kind of enclosure. And those computers would then do the number crunching and process all the data and run our software to make the car drive itself. Um, the car was um, configured so that we could sit inside while the rover was driving itself. And that was really unimportant for the race because in the race you weren't allowed inside, but it was really important for the development phase. So in the development phase, we would sit there um, and we would engage the Stanley run-by-yourself button, the autonomous driving button, a little uh, switch on the dashboard, and then the robot would go by itself and we would just sit there and wait for it to basically to screw up and do something stupid, in which case we would uh, re-engage that button take over control, save our lives literally sometimes because sometimes the stupid thing would be driving down a cliff. So catch the robot before it did that. And then we would sit down and look at the recorded data. We, we, we just Every piece of data was, was, was written on the disk and analyzed what exactly made the robot do what it did. So we really uh, went and debugged its brain so that it finally would find whatever the cause was and change the software accordingly. What does Stanley stand for? Uh, Stanley, the name was created... Because, for one, we are Stanford University, um, and Stanley was just a, a, a cute version of, of Stanford for us. So we, we chose his name to make it a, a personable entity so we can talk about it like a friend. One of your secret ingredients in Stanley was probabilistic robotics, and this has been uh, one of your main areas of research for the last 10 years. So what is probabilistic robotics? At first, at first, in the glance, of probabilistic robotics is a word that's very hard to pronounce and difficult to spell. Um, but what it really is, um, there's been a lot of work in robotic software over the last three decades. And probabilistic robotics is just a new style of writing computer software. Let me explain this to you. In the 1970s, uh, the predominant style of robotics in the 80s was what we call model-based. People at the time found out that Robotic, say, actuators deal with um, geometric spaces, like a, a, a typical Euclidean 3D space, or if you care about orientation, you have a 6D space. These are continuous spaces, and a computer is discrete. Um, so the original work on robotic motion planning that was very prevalent in the 80s um, looked into ways to uh, make robots move uh, in continuous coordinates, even though all the planning steps had to decompose the world in some sort of discrete formulation because computers are discrete problem-solving entities. Um, in the process of doing so, people usually assume that there's a model available of the world. They know exactly what the obstacles are, and they know exactly how the, the robot itself looks like. And, and that assumption, of course, was good at its time, but of course it broke every time you wanted to build a robot that didn't quite know where the obstacles were in the world. They had to face some sort of complex world um, and... Uh, and therefore wasn't able to, to make the right decision. Now, in the 90s, there was a new wave often called behavior-based robotics where people copied a little bit from biology and saying, you know, biology, biological beings have no clue what the world looks like. They look at sensor data and react to sensor data um, as a way to actuate themselves. And there was some very famous work going on at MIT at the time 
in, uh, in making insects move over very complicated surfaces, and these surfaces were way too hard to model. No motion planner could ever solve this, even uh, if the model was given. Yet these insects, by a set of very simple set of reflexes, were able to do it just fine. Now, our observation when we started doing probabilistic robotics was that neither of these methodologies is the, the holy grail, the, the right answer. Um, the model-based approach was way too strict on the, on the uh, correctness of models. The sensor-based or behavior-based approach was getting rid of all models so that all data, all information had to be uh, available in the immediate sensor imprint. Uh, and if there was the sensors itself were insufficient, they couldn't see the walls or whatever, then the robot couldn't take this into consideration in decision-making. So the probabilistic approach is kind of a fusion between uh, these two things. Uh, it uses models, but it assumes the models are uncertain, they're incomplete, uh, they are flawed, and, and the robot knows about where they're flawed. It says, you know, I might have a map of the world, but the map is incomplete, and I know where it's incomplete. And it uses sensor data, um, but the sensor data itself is, is uh, assumed to be noisy and incomplete and incorrect and, and corrupted by errors, as sensors usually are. And to integrate these kind of faulty, incomplete models with these faulty, incomplete sensor data, the robot uses uh, basically statistics. It uses what's called a base rule. Base rule is a technique to combine uh, uncertain evidence. If you know something about, for example, your prospects of having cancer, uh, might be, I don't know, 1 in 10,000, and then you get a lab result back that says it's 1 in 100, um, uh, and, and you have to combine these two things um, in some reasonable way, and uh, accounting for the fact that neither of these informations is, is perfect, then basically it's a standard uh, statistics technique from Statistics 101, how to basically combine these two pieces of evidence into a, a common belief. So probabilistic robotics is nothing else but that. It takes uh, prior data you might have about the environment or about your sensors, about your world, and sensor data and integrates this over time into a consistent worldview that becomes more and more correct as the robot goes on, yet that has an explicit notion of the robot's uncertainty, the residual thing it doesn't know, and has a way to deal with this uncertainty in a way that's mathematically sound when new data arrives. So when we started doing probabilistic robotics, um, we I looked into problems such as localization of robots and map building that have these characteristics, and we're really able to use or develop algorithms that could far exceed beyond what the robots could do at the time. So how were probabilities used in Stanley? Well, so Stanley um, used probabilities in a number of ways. Um, it used probabilities in fusing sensor data from multiple sensors as to find out where it is and how the environment looks like. It also used probabilities in the process of tuning its own software, um, a advanced uh, variant of the idea of not knowing what you know uh, in, in probabilistic robotics has to do with machine learning. Uh, machine learning, uh, you assume that, um, or robotic learning, that there's fundamental parts unknown that should govern your performance, like, for example, a controller, how to drive. And you use uh, human training examples as a way to provide evidence uh, to uh, improve your driving skill. So Stanley, for example, would learn from human driving. We would go out on a spin, uh, manually drive the car, but le let the entire computer suite run and record the data. Stanley would then analyze those data uh, and then fill in gaps in his own control uh, software um, as to how to best interpret the data and how to best make driving decisions based on the way the human exercised it for the robot. How does your approach adapt to different environments? You have this whole desert. How does it work for everything? Uh, that's a really great question. People often think now that we solved the desert problem, we solved the driving problem, and that's, that's really far from the truth. Um, Stanley was really engineered to 
um, to drive that specific desert track. And um, there's even variants of desert terrain that would make it much more difficult for Stanley to drive. I'll give you a good example. The um, the desert that Stanley um, won the challenge in was, was known to be what's called static. Um, DARPA, the organizers, went out of the way to remove anything that could be moving at the time these robots would operate. Uh, they deemed the problem hard enough to have kind of a static, non-moving desert uh, there and, and make a robot go through it. Now, one day in our training runs, uh, we came to a, a field that, um, that a farmer had freshly seeded with new seed. Um, and as a result, there were thousands of birds flocking around trying to steal the seed. And Stanley came to that path that led by this field. And, of course, the road was full of birds. And the, the birds all flew up because a robot was coming. Um, and, and as a result of it, Stanley thought, wow, there's 10,000 uh, uh, signposts, obstacles in the air. So it started swerving around the footprint that the birds left behind when they flew up, not knowing that this is actually a dynamic object that moves. And as a result, uh, Stanley swerved and, and became very slow, and the birds basically sat down 10 meters from where they were originally. And you can imagine how this went on until we finally said, this is, we have enough of that. It doesn't work. I'll tell you the story because um, there's a, a number of ways in which uh, Stanley doesn't isn't quite fit for, for general driving. The most important one is if there's something else moving, like other traffic, pedestrians, bicyclists, or in this case, birds, Stanley would get really confused. Uh, I think Stanley succeeded in driving static desert terrain of a huge complexity, uh, so it can handle all kinds of obstacles that occur in the desert. But we shouldn't make a mistake of thinking it's, it's fit for driving in traffic. That's uh, the subject of this year's competition. And I hope Stanley's son or daughter, Junior, <laughs> will be able to master this much better. You spoke of behavior-based control and model-based control. So what are the advantages of your approach with respect to these two other approaches? Well, um, we in probabilistic robotics believe that our methodology is less brittle. And on the end of the day, we, we, we get robustness by using computer resources to go through many, many different hypotheses. Different hypotheses. So the model-based approach says, okay, I know how the world looks like, and that is it. And it works great if the model is correct, but it fails miserably if the model is incorrect. So if you take desert driving as an example, there's no way you could build a model of that desert terrain. It just doesn't happen. It's just too complex. So it would just be inapplicable. If you assumed that there was a model, the robot would kind of fail immediately. There's absolutely no question. Because the first rock that's unexpected on the road would just run over and, and get a flat tire or what have you. Um, and that's true for all of robotics, uh, I would say. Pretty much every interesting application right now you can't model. Like you have a robot in an elderly home, for example. How on earth are you going to model where these elderly people move any point in time? Just no way. You can't even model where the furniture is and so on. Um, the behavior-based approach um, fails if uh, you have to make decisions that are outside the scope of your sensor measurements. Now, you could argue Stanley... Um, it's actually not correct, but you could still argue Stanley only has to look at the train ahead. So looking at the local information is sufficient to make decisions. So a behavior-based approach could conceivably drive a robot like Stanley. But the moment you have a robot operating in a house, for example, where it has to remember where it left a pair of glasses or where the refrigerator is, um, and it has to basically navigate there from a point where it can't see the glasses, just has to remember it, the sensor-based, behavior-based approach is basically at a, at a complete loss because it's really driven by the immediate sensor stimulus, and that's it. So it's a, it's a great model for very low-level behavior, like, I don't know, lack coordination of a robot running over rough terrain. 
it's a really poor way to, to think about global tasks that involve some sort of memory and, and so on. And that's exactly where the probabilistic approach succeeds uh, in many ways. It's not the ultimate single best method of programming, but what it does do, it allows you to, uh, to memorize something about the past, um, then resolve conflicting sensor evidence so that if what you memorize is not quite correct, you can revise it and improve it and, and be robust. The technical detail, I, I wrote a book on this topic called Probabilistic Robotics together with my longtime co-authors, uh, Lita Fox and Wolfram Burgert. And if you look into what's actually happening on the algorithmic side, the probabilistic approach uses computer power uh, to make robots robust. So instead of considering a single hypothesis and say that's how the world is, like the model-based approach, it says, oh, let me, let me think about the 10,000 most likely hypotheses and think about all of those and see what the right decision is. In doing so, it gets robust to errors in the model, but at the same time, it needs, needs more computer power. Now, the nice thing is, the reason why probabilistic techniques are now so popular is computers have become cheap and fast. Thanks to Intel and AMD and other companies, we have a ton of computing power that we can use. The physical world hasn't changed its speed, but the computer is changing. It's doubling its speed every, whatever, 18 months. Uh, so these methods have become much more suitable, much more capable in the last couple of years. In the upcoming DARPA urban challenge that you mentioned previously, the robots will have to evolve in an urban environment with traffic. Uh, what are the main challenges here? So the, you just mentioned the, the upcoming Urban Challenge, and that's going to take place November 3rd, uh, 2007. And it's uh, really a different animal. This is an attempt to drive in a city with moving traffic. Think of it as kind of having a, um, a postal truck uh, doing deliveries of little packages across a small town. And maybe each team itself has its own postal truck, so there's like 10 or 20 running around. And then there's regular civilian traffic running around regular cars. And now as you drive, you have to be able to see other vehicles, interact with them, and have uh, follow the, basically the rules of traffic. Uh, the reason why this is hard is when I, when I talk to a lay audience, I often compare this to perception versus understanding. Um, in, in Stanley's case, it was sufficient to say, look, this little spot in front of me is flat. I can drive over it. Stanley never made a decision what it actually is. Is this like a rock, a tumbleweed, a plant? Is this water? Is this, uh, I don't know, a rocky surface? But you can't get away with a simple like pixel-based classification in, in traffic. Now you have to really understand, okay, there are some measurements over here. There may be some, some structure that you can see in your range measurements. And all these dots belong together because they're actually a car, okay? And the car actually moves at a velocity. So when I want to predict what the car is going to do next, I have to factor this into consideration and really estimate its velocity. So there's a segmentation problem. There's a, um, a filtering problem and an, an inference problem that requires multiple time frames. That's the only way we can measure velocity. Um, and then you have to think about local interaction. Like if I move towards it, it will change its behavior because it itself tries to be intelligent and react to me. So there's a whole social interaction component that, to me, is much, much closer to kind of a holy grail of artificial intelligence where we don't have to just look at a scene and, and, and we have to really understand, really understand the environment and really make calculations how we can interact with this complex environment. It's clearly not solving all of AI, but if you look at artificial intelligence as, as one of the, the key goals we, we set out to solve 50 years ago was general scene understanding, like looking at a camera image, for example, understand what's there. Um, the grand challenge in this limited urban environment requires us to look at data and really say what's there and how is it going to behave. Do you see these competitions as a first step towards autonomous cars in everyday life? 
I absolutely do. I absolutely believe uh, there's a wave of cars coming at us that will make us safer in traffic. I just quoted some statistics. I'll give you a few more. Uh, in the United States, we lose 42,000 people every year due to traffic accidents. That's 15 times as many as we lost on September 11, which is a very tragic day. And 95% or more of those accidents are caused by human error. Uh, on total, we drive safely, but um, I mean, one of my close friends died when I was 18 in traffic because I have a split-second mistake in driving, and I'm sure many of your listeners have probably similar experiences. It's a big problem. Um, there's other things. Um, uh, if we could have our car drive ourselves to work, for example, we could, during commute hours, do something more productive than just sitting in traffic. In the United States, um, people's, the working population spends more, an average, more than an hour per day in commute traffic. We could have elderly people um, drive. Um, we could have blind people maybe drive cars. Uh, kids drive, use cars as a way of transportation. Transportation right now is limited to a, a somewhat restricted uh, subgroup of the population who are physically capable and fully bodied able people, adult people. Um, when you get really old, um, your independence depends on being able to get around. And it's not a pleasure to take an elderly person's car away just because he's become unsafe for others. And I'm speaking of experience here because I did the same with my father last year. And um, in May, we, we decided, my brother and I decided to take his car away because he was just unsafe. And he didn't survive another six months after we did this, partially because of the lack of, 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 of positive life spirit uh, that came with being able, not being able to get around anymore and being dependent on care. Um, there's, a, there's one last thing I want to quote here in terms of, of um, what we can actually achieve as a society by having uh, an ability to make cars drive themselves it has to do with uh, utilization of, of roadways. Um, we think of um, highways as congested and as, as well-used, but they're not really well-used. Even a congested highway is mostly empty. Um, if you look at the spaces between cars, um, there's a lot of space between cars that we don't use because we as humans are somewhat slow in reacting compared to a computer, and therefore we need buffer distance on the sides and in front of us. There's been credible evidence in the United States that if you have a car that drives somewhat robotically and is able to keep its lane better and, 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 and brake in a more regulated way, that you could double the capacity of the highway system. Um, doubling the capacity of the highway system saves the United States trillions of dollars in investments. Otherwise, had to spend on building better highway infrastructure, which is not going to happen anyhow. So in many ways, in the United States, it's the only way out of a growing crisis in the U.S. highway system having to do with a ever-increasing uh, use of highway infrastructure and the lack of creation of new highway real estate. We might be able to really change the nation in a very, very profound way. Let's talk about the future now. In probabilistic robotics, what do you see as the most promising areas of research for the next 20 years? So I'm a big believer that um, the physical world and computers will, will coexist and computing will become immersive in the world. And I think probabilistic robotics is one of many um, new trends in computer science to deal with the information flood that arises when you put sensors in the physical world. Um, not all these sensors have to have physical actuators, so you can think of sensor networks and buildings that uh, sense what you are doing and, and, and make us more effective in, in, in using our space. Uh, clearly, probabilistic techniques have a uh, place there, and there's a lot of research to be done. Uh, you can also think of manipulators. Uh, robotics in recent years has really neglected manipulation, which is one of the original goals. In fact, it's probably the only successful commercial uh, dimension of robotics today in terms of industrial machines. 
uh, like assembly line machines and welding machines and so on. Um, I see a great future of using probabilistic techniques. In fact, a lot of low-hanging fruit uh, applied to manipulation tasks, like pick-and-place tasks that have some sort of uncertainty, or even better so, a two-armed machine that sits co-lives with you in your house and helps you load the dishwasher and so on and, and cleans up your laundry. There's clearly a, a unique opportunity to use probabilistic techniques there because those are so inherently uncertain that it's really important to understand limits of existing models and, and, and noise and sensor data. What are the limits and challenges in achieving this vision? Oh, there's huge challenges. Um, in probabilistic robotics, um, there's always the challenge of making explicit what you know about the world, writing down, a, 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 in this case, probabilistic model that says, you know, this is exactly what I know and where I believe the uncertainty comes from. And then there's a huge computational challenge. It's very easy to write down a probabilistic formula where the state estimation that you have to perform to deal with statistical techniques that arise out of it deal with spaces of, I don't know, 100,000 dimensions that are just way too large for any computer ever to tackle during our lifetimes. A lot of work in probabilistic robotics goes into um, writing down the problem formally correctly, mathematically, or as correct as you can get it using probability theory, and then finding ways to take the resulting computational problems and make them manageable because there's just way too many hypotheses you might be able to pursue about the world. Um, and if I look at the literature as it has emerged, there's a, a few guiding principles, such as base rule and, and, and variance thereof. But there's a lot of work in taking complex problems and restructuring in ways that we cut corners uh, to make them computationally tractable. I think if you go into robot arm control, this problem is going to hit us more. If you go into, because robot arms are much more complex than mobile robots on the ground, in the way they can actuate themselves. If you go to, to sensor networks and maybe we, stri we string together, I don't know, 10,000 sensors and maybe 10,000 little cameras, all of a sudden, in addition to the probability problem, we have a communication problem because these sensors can only communicate locally and have a limited bandwidth and so on. And as they communicate, they use up energy, so they have limited energy. And all of a sudden, we have to rethink and immerse in a distributed probabilistic robotics field that hasn't yet been created. In all areas of robotics now, where do you think the biggest advances will be made? Um, I think robotics has really become a software discipline. So I think the biggest stumbling blocks right now in, in making robots work um, are more on the software side than the hardware side. Uh, there's a lot of um, advances necessary on the hardware side, mostly having to do with downcosting, making robots cheaper. But I have relatively little concern that if we're able to solve some of the hard pro software problems, like, for example, a, a domestic robot that can load a dishwasher, if that's one of our goals, or one that can help elderly people in sustaining independence, um, that we were able to build hardware relatively cheaply even at the present point through mass uh, manufacture. Um, so the big question for me remains, how can we make these machines smart enough that they are safe to people, uh, they can really perform a set of tasks broad enough that they're really useful for a person and do it in a way that just never fails. Um, I, I see a huge possibility in the automotive sector because driving is not as complex as loading a dishwasher, I would argue. And uh, there the, the benefits to society is very immediate. So if you were able to build robots that can assist us in driving or cars that park themselves, what have you, uh, you could really have a huge dent and, and, and make society much more effective and productive. 20 years from now, how do you think robotics will have changed our everyday life? Well, I'd, I'd argue robotics is changing our, our lives massively today. In fact, you can think of a dishwasher already as a, as a robot. And what we'll do, I think, is 
we'll use robotic technology to get more data about the spaces we live in and then automate some of the most tedious tasks that we don't care about as much. Uh, this could be tasks in agriculture where we or mining where robots will maybe replace more and more people. This is already happening. So that next mining accidents, we had just had mining at the States two days ago in Utah where six miners are still buried alive. Uh, maybe we'll report that six robots are buried alive and we just don't care about them. Um, in our personal life, I believe 20 years from now, we will all have some sort of a mobile machine running around our house, taking care of things like picking up clothes, making sure the stove is switched off, uh, being an information platform for us, providing various local services, maybe for people specifically in need, like elderly, ways to remind them to see the bathroom, assistance in bringing them food, finding glasses for them, and so on. Uh, maybe a telemedicine kind of robot where a, a remote nurse could log in and, and interact with a person through a long-distance link without having to travel there. There's many of these applications. I think as the robot industry matures, and it's been, it's been a while, it's been a slow hog, but as, as it matures, we're going to see more and more of those things um, creeping on our home. This we've just recently seen robotic vacuum cleaners. And it'll make us just our life somewhat more convenient. Thanks, Sebastian, for being here with us on Talking Robots. Thanks for talking to me, Sabine. And good luck for your, for your 207 Urban Challenge. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. This concludes our one-year anniversary show with Sebastian Thrun on probabilistic robotics. Hope you'll stick with us for the upcoming year. See you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.